Good evening. Welcome. God has blessed us. Because of that, we are able to be thankful. Amen. Now, there's some things that I want to talk to you about tonight. I really felt God speaking to me about talking to us all about one. About one. To clarify, I, I take it to all past grade one. So, uh, how many of you know that one signifies one unit? One and one is two. Everyone okay there? Am I right? No one thinks it's three. Okay, so we, we understand one. Now, the reason I'm talking about one is because God has put on my heart to get back to one. Now, just because there's something that's one doesn't mean there isn't other things. So the first thing I want you to do is please go with me to Ephesians. We're going to be reading quite a lot of Bible. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read this in a couple of different versions. Because it's quite a lengthy piece, but it's, it's really important. From verse, it's going to be Ephesians 2 and reading from 11. Let's just read from verse 8 because it will be better. Ephesians, Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. For by what? By grace. You have been saved through faith. So it was a gracious act. The word grace there, people have said it means unmerited favor. It means God did you a favor. It doesn't mean God's grace towards us is God doing a favor towards us. Okay? So you could read it. By God doing you a favor through faith, you are saved. Does that make sense? This is very important. For by God doing you a favor, you have been saved through faith. It's the most important thing. Because if you read it like this, God has favor on you no matter what you do, then immediately you think you can do anything and somehow license for sin is found in grace. It's not what grace is for. When God gave us this favor, He gave us jet fuel. And when you put jet fuel in a car, you know, like nitrous oxide, you don't expect the car to go slower, you expect it to go faster. If it goes slower, they did something wrong. So it's not a matter of being able to continue doing without the power of God. It's now because of God's favor, you have the power of God. And since you have the power of God, you are now able to live like you never could before. Do you know, you are less of an excuse for sin than the Old Testament people. The Old Testament people didn't have the Holy Spirit helping them. You do. When you sin, you do it in spite of the Holy Spirit helping you. They did it without the Holy Spirit helping them. You are more guilty than them. Well, it's because you are also ignorant of what you have. And because you are ignorant of what you have, you don't know what is working on your behalf. And the lie is what traps you. And the lie is that you're weak. The lie is you're weak. And the lie is that your problem is unique. And the lie is that you are uniquely weak. And your sin is uniquely disgusting to you. And no one has ever sinned as bad as you. And you're weak like no one else can be weak. That's the lie. And then what you do is you look for other people that seem weaker than you. Because you've got to find somebody that's worse off than you so you feel better about the situation. Because if someone is worse off than you, then you don't feel so bad. Because you're comparing yourself to those around you. 
And the Bible says we make a big mistake when we compare ourselves to ourselves. Because we should be comparing ourselves to God. Jesus didn't say, be perfect and your neighbor is perfect. He said, be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. And then he adds this, which I'd like to add for the audio's sake and anyone listening to this, who causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. God doesn't withhold rain. God is the giver of life, not the taker of life. God did not even invent death. Death came because of sin. Romans 5. Through one man's disobedience, sin entered the world, and through sin, death. To all men, but all men sin. Death was never God's plan for man. Death was sin's plan for man. And when man subjugated himself to sin, sin's plan took over. Praise God. He's come, and he has destroyed the kingdom of sin and death. And he has brought the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of life in his spirit. Amen? So now, this thing is important. Because as I'm reading through this, you guys are going to start to see some things. Okay? Because there's quite a bit still to go. So, bear with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Now, many people have assumed that the gift is the faith. And it's not. The gift is salvation. Salvation is the gift that you attain through faith. And praise God, he's given every human being the ability to have faith. But what is faith? Faith is the ability to trust. Everyone can trust if they choose to. But some people struggle to trust because they've been hurt before. So trust is something we all have the measure of. We all have the measure of trust. We all trust. And when the gospel comes to us, we have an opportunity to put our trust in God. At that point, we are putting our trust in what He's already done for us. Does that make sense? It's so good, the gospel. <laughs> it's not a result of works, which means all of this happens without you having earned it. So that no one may boast. Because if you could earn it, then you could walk around and say, hmm, I finally am better than you see, that's what's wrong with religion. And when I say religion, I mean it in the sense that we all understand religion, not in the sense of the true religion, which God calls true religion, according to James, which is to take care of widows and orphans and keep yourself unstable from the world. I'm not talking about what that word religion means there. I'm talking about what we generally understand. And religion is not what God wanted for us. In the Garden of Eden, how many of you remember that in Genesis 3, uh, no, so Genesis 2, God said, and you will have a new religion called, anybody read that? No. And you shall bow down and worship me three times a day. Did you, did you remember that? And you shall not eat pork. Oh, by the way, you're not eating any animals at that stage. Do you remember this religion? No. There was no such thing. Why? Because God never wanted religion. He wanted relationship. You don't want your children to religiously worship you. You want relationship with your children. So so you can see here, you can see this very much so, how he's busy unpacking for us the text. It's busy talking to us as to how this has happened, right? Watch this. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. But I thought he just said it's not because of good works. It's not because of works. He didn't say anything about good. And later on, they make a distinguishment between bad works in, in the sense of dead work, and then good works in the sense of works done by faith instead of works done by rules and regulations. So works done by rules and regulations to appease God 
You know, it's anything you do to try and appease God, you're doing to earn something. God hates it when you do that. In fact, he sees that action as dirty rags. But when you trust him for what he's done for you, and you have trust that he will do what he said, then it pleases him because he sees that you are humble. So let me explain something about pride and humility. Pride, okay, every, this is what everyone thinks humility is. Everyone thinks humility is, no, no, I don't deserve it, no, 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 sorry, it's okay, thank you very much, but I don't deserve it. Everyone thinks that's humility. No, that's what humility is. Humility is saying, thank you, I know I don't deserve it, but I appreciate it. Do you see the difference? Pride is actually, thank you, but no, no, I don't deserve it, no, no I, can't, I can't have it, that's pride. And the reason why is because pride cannot receive what it cannot earn. God says that he will resist the pride and he'll give grace to the humble. If you are proud, he cannot give you his grace. Pride will block you from God's grace. Why? Because if you believe that it's undeserving, then you believe that somehow you still got to earn it. If you believe you've got to earn it, then by default, you are prideful because you somehow have become arrogant enough to assume that it's even earnable. And what God has for you is unattainable. What he's given you is unearnable. There is no amount of work you can do to try and attain what God has freely given. Does that make sense? And it's so important that we understand this. Because, think about this. Earlier on I told you that in our previous state, we're, we know how bad we are, the devil reminds us, and so on. And then we try and find other people worse than us. Pride does that. Why? Because it's trying to justify its lack by saying someone else's was. Humility accepts the gift of abundance and shares what it has. Doesn't make sense. Humility is a channel. In other words, humility is receiving all that God says about you in spite of whether you think you deserve it or not. So if God says you're a son, then you're a son. Even you ladies, because he says I'm a, I'm a bride, and I'm a pretty bride, so it's fine. If God says something about you, it's true whether you think so or not. And the biggest favor you can do yourself is to believe him in spite of what you think. In spite of what you think, believe him. Because true humbleness is Thinking of yourself as you ought, not thinking of yourself as you ought not. And you can think of yourself as more than you ought, and you can think of yourself as less than you ought. Most people make the mistake of thinking of themselves less than they ought, and very few people can actually think of themselves more than they ought, because more than they ought is to say you are God. And only atheists do that, because atheists don't exist. Atheists have a God, it's themselves. So not everyone believes in God. There's theists <laughs> everywhere. Which is by the way the word theist means to believe that there's a God. Okay, anyway, that was free. Anyone listening? You learned something there. So we understand now that God has prepared these good works for us beforehand that we should walk in them. So God, He knows the lives you will impact. He knows the people you will make contact with. I want you to say, I'm not an accident. 
I am not an accident. I am not an accident. Hallelujah. I am not an accident. I am not an accident. Yes, my life has purpose. My life has purpose. I have destiny. I have destiny. My life has meaning. My life has meaning. I have direction. I have direction. God orders my steps. God orders my steps. No matter how I make my plans. No matter how I make my plans. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Isn't that better? So God knows where you're going to be. He's not the one remote controlling where you go. Did you hear? God knows foresight. Foresight is not the same as forearms. Okay, I said that earlier tonight. Uh, foresight, okay, is knowing beforehand. Are you with me? Foresight is knowing beforehand. It's not manipulating beforehand. Do you know there's a difference <laughs> if I watch the decisions you make? Often enough to know what other decisions you'll make, as opposed to trying to manipulate the decisions you'll make so that you'll make the decision I want you to make. Do you know there's a difference between these two? How many of you know your spouse or your or your friend or somebody well enough, even your mother or your father well enough, that when you go to a restaurant you know exactly what they're going to order? You have foresight. I'm before the foundations of sitting at the table, I knew you would order the chocolate milkshake. Is that right? Is it, is it that? Is it predictable? The added benefit is that God can look down and see what the choices actually are. Because God is not stuck in your time loop. God is in eternity and He knows everything, not because He made everything work out that way, but because He knows how everything works out. So when people say to me, well, you know, if it's my time, it's my time. I'm like, okay, what if it's your time? Then you decide to. No, 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 no. God decides nothing. No, God does not decide nothing. You do. You do. How? Well, there's a law that says if you honor your mother and your father, you will have a long life. So guess what? If you honor your mother and father, you'll have a long life. So guess what? You can have a long life. And you can have a short one if you don't honor your mother and your father. I mean, back in those days, these were stone kids that were, were disobedient. So, not to be advocating that. But do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, this is important. We need to understand that our steps are ordered. How many of you believe that the Holy Spirit is with you? That you expect that wherever you go, you're ever ready to engage people for the kingdom, for the gospel. The problem is, in the moment, are you obedient to it? Maybe we're distracted, we're busy or something. So we need to be more aware, more vigilant, and we need to ignore the risk. Can you bear with me with I want you to ignore the risk. Because the risk isn't real. The risk is, what if they reject me? Boo-hoo, go cry a heap. You'll be fine. They're not going to reject you. If they say no, it's no big deal. No big deal. Do you understand what I'm saying? Look, human rejection means nothing. It means nothing. God's acceptance means everything. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is, he accepted you the way you were, but he loved you enough not to leave you the same. Because you come to him dirty. But he says, hey, we need to clean that party. Yeah. See, he clean, he makes us new, even though we come to him broken. He meets us where we act, but he doesn't leave us there because shame. He didn't come there so he could leave you there, right? You came there so he could make you new. That was the point. We really have to understand that it is because it is very much for this purpose that you have been saved. 
for good works that you will do because of the faith you have predestined for you by God. So we need to see a situation that needs divine intervention. It might be a setup for glory. Oh, you're not hearing me now. It might be a setup for glory. Come on, how many of you have heard that voice? But what if nothing happens? Any, has anyone heard that voice? But what if nothing happens? I thought if you want to be, you're going to hear this from now on. What if something happens? What if this is the one? What if this is the one who lay hands on? What if this is the one you speak to? And everything changes. What if this is the one you pray for and bullets disappear? What if this is the one you pray for and they come back from the dead? What if this is the one you pray for and they come out of the wheelchair? What if this is the one? And you walk away and you miss it. One day in heaven, you'll watch the reruns, you'll kick yourself. Or maybe they'll have someone kick you for you. Please, from now on, if, someone, if the devil says to you, what if nothing happens? The only reason he would say that is because he's scared because you're coming. Because if nothing happens, the only thing that might get damaged is your ego. Get over yourself. So then there should be no problem. Isn't that right? Because if you truly die, then for sure there's no problem. 11. The heading in the Bible, there is one in Christ. Therefore remember, that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What is he saying? You Gentiles were scum. You were cut off. You were separated. You had no hope. Isn't that right? I want you to think about how did the Jews treat the Gentiles? You know, they were told, like, you will be an elitist group. You, like, they're the worst cult ever. <laughs> you will be an elitist group, and let me tell you something, you will not have anyone else come in here and try and mess up this family. You hear me? Like this, you, they'd be stoned, they'd be doing that. You know what I'm saying? And we're not talking about the good kind of stone. Like, it's bad stones. There's hurt stones. Are you with me? Understand reality here is very, very important. Because the Israelites, they were brought up in systemic racism. They were xenophobic towards every other nation. They were brought up to believe that they are God's people and they are no other people but them. They are God's people. They are no other people. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? And they were attacked. And they were persecuted, and the other nations didn't like them. When Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, she was like, well, Why are you, a Jewish man, speaking to me? Don't you know I'm a Syrophoenician? Because it was unheard of the Jews would speak to these people. And when they were asked, Jesus, who, you know, what do you mean by love your neighbor? Jesus said, Well, who's your neighbor? And then he told the story and he explained who the neighbor was. Do you know what an insult it was for a Jew to hear a story that a Samaritan saved a Jew's life? I'm trying to open your eyes. Because when Jesus came, he didn't just come to paint a nice little picture of heaven. He came to bring a new government on the earth. He came to establish a new rule of life. Because Jesus became the last Adam. He became the replacement to the first. The same but better than ever. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So how did we come close? For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What did he do in his flesh? He broke the dividing wall of hostility. Which wall of hostility? What is he talking about? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new mankind or man in place of two. One. How many? So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing, thereby putting to death the hostility. And he came and put peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. When he says we both, is he talking about the old man and the new man? Or is he talking about the Jew and the Gentile? So he's talking about the Jew and the Gentile. So he's talking about the separation between their cultures. He's saying, listen, brothers, don't you get it? The stuff that you were using before to make war with one another, Jesus has dismantled it. This It's destroyed. It's no longer there. Jesus crucified it on the cross. He brought that hostility into himself. And he's made a new kind of man. So then, for though, sorry, for through him, we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. But on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I'm going to do it again. Take two. When, when I'm done here, you're going to know that what I read, I read, and it's true. What I've just told you, I mean, this is Greek, by the way, if you, if you want the best possible Greek translation for the New Testament, Weast or Kenneth is Weast is the best translation. Okay? He only did the New Testament because it was a Greek scholar, not a Hebrew. Good thing. So we're going to read from that verse which says, For by grace you have been saved. Okay, and I'm going to read from the Weast. For by the grace you have been saved in time past completely. Are you, are you listening? This is the Weast translation in the Greek. So you have been saved in time past completely through faith with the result that your salvation persists throughout present time. Wow. Listen carefully. And this salvation is not from you as a source of God. It is the gift. Not from a source of works in order that no one might boast. For we are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus with a view to good works which God prepared beforehand in order that within their sphere we may order our behavior. I don't want to explain too much. It kind of explains itself. So it's really long. On this account, be remembered. So when I say you on this account, it normally has got to do with what I just said to you before. Isn't that right? So whatever I've just kind of explained to you, you've got to keep that into consideration when I say, on this account, because I'm talking about this that I just spoke about. On this account, be remembering that at one time, 
you, the Gentiles in the flesh, the ones habitually called uncircumcised by that which is called circumcision, in the flesh, made by hands, that you were at that time without a Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of, of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of the promise, not having hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, who at one time were far away, have become near by the blood of the Christ. For he himself is our peace, the one who made the both one. The one who made two one. Is that right? Having broken down the middle wall of the partition, the enmity in his flesh, having rendered inappropriate the law, inoperative, sorry, having rendered inoperative the law of the commandments and ordinances. Let me ask you something. If someone says, and we read this title twice, right, and there's other verses we can read, that something is inoperative or cancelled or put away, what does it mean? Stop doing that thing. You were not made to live under the law of sin and death, which came through Moses. You have to live under the law of the spirit of life and the law that Jesus gave us, which is the law of love. Jesus said to the lawyer who asked him, which are the greatest commandments? He said, the first one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How many of you have done that consistently without fail for the rest of your life? You mean even after you got saved, you still struggle with that? Okay, the second one was like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Problem with loving your neighbor as yourself is if you hate yourself, you hate your neighbor. A lot of you hate themselves. Isn't that right? Jesus came to fix that. He said, okay, new rules. Believe in me. Number one. Number two, love one another. Like I'm going to show you how to love. Jesus showed us how to love. Then he did a good job of that. And then he said, now, as I have loved you, you go love one another. And by this, then, you are my disciples, but how you love one another. But it's important to understand it. There's a transition. The oldest past, the new is here. But let me ask you something. If you love one another, will you murder? Oh, why? Will you steal? Will you lie? Will you commit adultery? You see, love has no law against it. So law, the law is fulfilled by love. That's what Jesus said. Didn't come to do away with it. I came to fulfill it. But love fulfills it, but doesn't put you under it. Takes the power of the law away. The power of the law is what? Sin. Then, he rendered inoperative the law of the commandments and ordinances in order that the two he might create in himself, resulting in one new man, making peace, and in order that he might reconcile the both in one body to God through the cross. Having put to death the enmity by it, and having come, he proclaimed glad tidings of peace to you who were far off and to you who were near, because through him we have our entry, the both of us, by one spirit, into the presence of the Father. One more. Okay, so you're getting this so far, right? One, not two. And the one wasn't the old man and the new man. Okay, remember, before the cross, the only distinction was Jew and Gentile. And Gentile means every other exact thing that you want to be, except for Jew. Bunch of heathens. And by the way, there was no Muhammad and no Islam, so it didn't even exist. They didn't have an ancient religion. 
that have a very young, corrupt religion. Why? Because it's made up. They use the Bible to make stuff up. And you're not getting to that. Because they make stuff up. Ishmael was not their great, great, great ancestor. There's no evidence for that. One of the family lines might be connected to it somewhere, but it's not a proven fact. And their history doesn't go back that far. They don't even have history. Just like many of them don't even have documents to immigrate legally. They don't have history, documents, about anything. And the only pieces of paper that were impeded and pooed on that they found in Muhammad's little cave are the ones that they've created and grown out of. So, these people don't think that the Islamic religion is some fancy, ancient, old religion. It's not. It came years after Christ and Christians already were established. It's one of the biggest lies to hit the center stage of the world. And by placing themselves in a position to be contending with Abraham, and for Abraham's seed, they're actually putting themselves in the position of the slave woman that is constantly fighting against the seed of promise. If you go read in Galatians, you'll see that Paul uses an allegory, and he says that the seed of promise will always fight against the seed of the slave woman. And the reason he's using the allegory is not because he's trying to fight Islam. He's using it because he's trying to fight religion. Islam is a religious system that it literally identifies itself similar to any other religion. Religion is by principle in opposition to the gospel because the gospel is about the kingdom of God. It's about a governmental change. It's not about a new religion. Religion kills people. God's kingdom has come. Now I want you to imagine Imagine you running your own house, okay? Can your children create a little subculture inside your house that violates your own rules? Can they try? So if you let them, will they carry on and do so? Now, I want you to think about this. In the Old Testament, when Samuel was priest, many of you who have heard this before, you know what I'm going to talk about. When Samuel was priest, the king was nowhere to be found because there was no king. There was only Samuel, the priesthood, and the people. And God was their king. When the people came to Samuel and said, we want a king, they were saying it because they wanted a system like the world. Because they wanted a system like the world. When Samuel first heard from the people that they wanted a king, he was sad. And God said to him, don't be upset, because they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as king. And even though God was against the idea, God told Samuel to go and tell them how bad it would be, and he explained how bad it would be, they still insisted on wanting a king. So first God says, well maybe I can reason with them, maybe they'll understand it's bad, they'll say, okay, no, we get it, it's a bad idea. You know, he's trying to sign, but God's not trying to force them to do anything. Then at the end, they finally choose a king. And God is like, man, you don't understand what you've just done. You've actually told me I'm a rubbish king and you need to do a better job than me. So now, Samuel is like, you don't know the evil you've done to God. And tonight I'm going to ask God to send rain and lightning in a season where it doesn't normally come. And you're going to know that you have done this evil to God. And so that night there's rain and lightning. The people then, they start to get like really worried because they realize, oops, you know, rain and lightning can be so dangerous. So they come to Samuel, they say, please forgive us, etc, etc. And Samuel's like, okay, now we've already put this in place. 
to okay for now, but that's, that's how it needs to operate. And then God says, unless you and the king submit to me and follow my ways, things are going to go bad. That was a system that was put in by man. When Jesus came, he came to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. When we decided to put other systems of man's governance over and above God's system, even though we were already in the kingdom, because the kingdom of God is on the earth, the Holy Spirit came. Day of Pentecost, arrival, inauguration, commencing. It's here, people. We go and we create our own little bubble inside that big bubble, and we we decide to manage ourselves. We decide to run our own world, run our own things, and then in the midst of our runnings, we then go around and go, God, why are you letting this happen? No. No. Slowpoke, you made it happen. God's not the one making it happen. If you were living according to the kingdom of God, you would be experiencing the provision of the kingdom, you'd be experiencing the advantages of the kingdom, you'd be experiencing all the things that come with the kingdom. The minute that our understanding changes about anything in the kingdom, immediately we begin to experience it as we become diligent. For those of us who have begun to understand what the scriptures teach about divine health, as we begin to understand it and implement it and put it into practice, guess what? We begin to live in the kingdom according to that truth. Why? Because you're coming in line with God's governance. I'm no longer going by the governance of what the country wants me to do. I'm going by the government of God's work. For example, the country wants you to inoculate your children. They can fly a kite very high. It's not happening. Why? Because my God, He is my healer. He's my children's healer. I don't need some mercury poisoning and monkey blood in my children's veins. Thank you very much. Which, by the way, is within there. Because I came into obedience to the kingdom in that area of my life, as I did, I began to experience the kingdom in that area. Why? Because the kingdom is already there. The kingdom is already here. Only when you line your mind up with the way the kingdom works, can you begin to experience the kingdom. Up until then, you are making choices for yourself, or you are allowing other people to make choices for you. And you cannot have a world in which you have free will, and God in control of everything. Because if God is in control of everything, then you must be in control of your free will. Which means if he's in control of your free will, then everything you do, right and wrong, is a consequence of God telling you what to do. And if he's telling you what to do, then he's also making you sin. Which means he can't judge you for something, he made you do. So by definition, the fact that God can hold you accountable and judge you for your own actions means that you were free to choose what you chose. Otherwise it would be unjust and God wouldn't be a just God. And I think we can all agree on it. So God is in control of your life in the degree that you surrender your life to. But he is not in control of everything because there is too much stuff that people are choosing that he is in control of. But this is in control of. The kingdom. Okay, so this is out of um, the Mirror Bible, which is actually a really good paraphrased Bible. So it's going to put it in like a paraphrased kind of way. So, so far, you've, you've heard a very accurate translation, you've heard a transliteration, and now you're going to hear a paraphrase. It's just to help you get depth on this particular part of the scripture. How, how many of you are learning something tonight? Verse 2 11. Remember where you came from. Not only were you spiritually dead, but 
It wasn't long ago when you were still classified as non-Jewish. Judging on the surface, you had nothing that linked you to them. They sneered at you because you didn't share their disgusting mark of circumcision, which was their claim to fame. During that time, you were distanced from the Messianic hope, and you had nothing in common with Israel. You felt foreign to the covenants of the prophetic promise, living a life with nothing to look forward to in a world where God seemed absent. So cool, huh? Is it like becoming real? Can you like feel it? <laughs> Come on, Jesus. Verse 13. But now, wow, everything has changed. You have discovered yourselves to be located in Christ. What once seemed so distant is now so near, and his blood reveals your redeemed innocence and your authentic Genesis. His blood reveals that you were always destined to be a divine, genetic spawn of God. Like you were to be God born. Isn't that awesome? It is in him that we are one and at peace with everyone. What? At peace with everyone. He dissolved every definition of division. He dissolved every definition of division. In his incarnation, he rendered the entire Jewish system of ceremonial laws and regulations useless as a measure to justify human life and conduct. In that he died, Humanity's death, all grounds for tension and hostility were entirely removed. Now how is this possible, guys? How can every day for, for man, every reason for hostility towards one another, how can it be removed? Because this guy died on a cross. How can it be? Well, because what, the, what separated you from God was greater than what separates us from one another. And if God was willing to forgive you, to bring you back in, then you should be willing to forgive one another from the heart. Not holding anything against one another. Not this slut-cut, weak nonsense, I forgive you, but you can take a couple of years before I die to you. If Jesus forgave you that way, brother, you'd never make it into heaven. You'd get there and say, oh, you're here. I think you've got your bags and leave trying you haven't waited long enough. Jesus doesn't forgive that way. How dare we forgive that way? We forgive God's way. We don't forgive our way. We don't have a choice. God's king. He said, this is how you forgive. Look, I'm going to show you. This is how you do it, bro. Okay, good. Now you know. We love because he first loved us. We forgive because he first forgave us. We don't get to choose how. Listen, the Bible says, be quick to repent. I'm going to tell you, be quick to forgive. Be quick to forgive before it becomes a root of bitterness, before it becomes an offense, before you give room for the devil, before you fall into the snare, before you become hard-hearted and you fail to be able to love everyone irrespective of who they are and what they are. Because that's what you're destined for. You're destined for greatness. You're not destined to be limited because you've got blinkers on. Do you think there were people who killed the Christians? Do you think the Christians could have been in their day Hardened towards those who wanted to kill them for the sake of the gospel? We are living in a time where Roman soldiers could have shown up at any moment, dragged your parents up, and killed them for not denying Jesus, and all the children would have to watch. 
or even worse, the parents that have the children. This is that they loved him, and yet they didn't deny Jesus. Yet they continued to believe. Yet they said, no, I will not. Why? Because eternity matters. Because the kingdom of God is real. Because I'm not a compromiser. Because I'm not a weakling. I'm not a sakat. I've got backbone. I'm a man and a woman of God. The spirit is my strength. And you cannot take from me. Why? Because I'm already dead. You can't kill someone who's dead. I'm a dangerous person if somebody died already. Serious, huh? If you already died, what, what, what are they going to do to you? We're going to kill you. Yeah, I've done that. So this is what they had to come with Paul. Was that when they said we're going to kill you, he said, Wonderful! And they said, Oh, we're going to keep you alive. He said, Amazing! Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's how we believe. It wasn't, Oh, I can't believe God's going to let me die. Listen, in all essence, in truth, if we really believe the gospel, and we really believe this thing that we're talking about, we believe, then the moment you do die as a martyr for the king, you take a shortcut to heaven. You go and be with the Father. Up until then, heaven is in you. Because Jesus didn't die to get you to heaven. He died to get heaven to you. Because he wanted heaven to you. And that's why he said, pray like this, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth, even. And this isn't this powerful? We're almost done, guys. The peace he proclaims reveals one new human race, created and defined in Christ, instead of two groups of people separated by their ethnic identity and differences. Even God dealt with this thing 2,000 years ago? Yo. Both parties are fully represented and equally reconciled to God in one human body through the cross. He reinstated the formal harmony. All opposing elements were thus utterly defeated. On that basis, he made his public appearance proclaiming the good news of peace to the entire human race, both those who felt left out in the cold as far as the promise and the covenants were concerned, as well as those who were near all along because of their Jewish identity. Because of Christ, both Jew and Gentile now enjoy equal access to the Father in one spirit. The conclusion is clear. You are no longer frowned upon as a foreigner. You, you are where you belong and part of an intimate family where no one is suspicious of you. Your lives now give tangible definition to the spiritual structure having been built into it by God upon the foundation that the prophets and the apostles. The first evidence of this fall was Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In him, every one of us are like living Lego blocks, fitted together of the same fabric, giving ever-increasing articulation to a global, mobile, sanctuary intertwined. The kingdom of God is here. Just like someone can be lied to about their sin and about sin's power over their life, and they can shadow box for the rest of their existence, trying to beat something that's already been beaten, so too we can try and solve a problem even in our own world that actually has already been solved. The problem really is that we don't like God's solution. And that is why. As believers, as ambassadors of the kingdom, 
we must begin to represent true answer. We can no longer compromise on this. We can no longer substitute the answer. We must not only be the answer, but we must proclaim the truth. The kingdom of God is in fact here, in demonstration and in our lives. How we show the love of God to others can shock people into realizing that that which they have held and carried on in their lives for so long is not of the kingdom of God. I want to, I'm encouraging you and inspiring you, my hope, to remember that you are one with me. You are no alone. That you are one with me. That I am one with you. Because if I am in him and you are in him, then we are in him. And how can we not be in if we are in him and he's in us? How can we not be all together one? How can I say to my finger, you are not part of my body? You are all one. And time doesn't permit me to tell you about where it talks about all the more how one you are. Because out of one soul and one God and one Father, we have one purpose and one manner. And though it takes its form separately and differently for everyone, because of your impact, your sphere of influence, and how that manifests, the mandate itself stays the same. You are a carrier of God's glory. And you, every one of you, get. Father, I thank you for every person here tonight. I know that I've delivered your word, so I ask that not only the word is cut, but the word brings life, and that it also brings action. And that it is good soil. It is all good soil. And we will not kind of rob the word, we will bear fruit in Jesus' name. Amen.